0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's podcast. It is very chilly here right now, and I am not used to this at all. I'm used to being up in apartments where you have all of the heat from all the apartments below you seeping up into yours, keeping it toasty all year round. And in the past month or so, I've gone from wearing black t-shirts to black long sleeve shirts to now black hoodies. Got to be black because, you know, slimming and I could use all the slimming I can get in these videos, but I'm telling you that not just to complain about being cold, but to tell you that I'm going to start to add more winter related merch to the retro RGB t-shirt shop. I never got any of the hoodies that were up there before because I didn't need to. It was always warm. So I ended up picking up merch from my friends' stores to hold me off until then. So I got a hoodie on from Destiny's merch store and I've been rocking the Laser Bear zip-up hoodie everywhere. Pretty much worn through that thing. That was so comfortable. Uh, and I want to add stuff like that to the retro RGB merch shop. So there's already a pullover hoodie there now, which are great if you know you're cold and you just want to be warm all the time. Uh, I do really want to come up with a cool design for a zip up because I love those two. They definitely have their place, especially when it's not super cold, but you still want to be a little warmer. And I always love the hoods anyway, uh, and I'll see what else I could come up with. So I just wanted to let everybody know, keep your eye on that shop. Uh, and of course, if you have any ideas of things, I would, I'm, you know, I'm all, years i just want to make some very cool and unique merch that fellow retro gaming nerds might recognize and smile at i certainly smile every time i see somebody wearing one at any of the expos i just think that's so humbling and so awesome to see so thank you all very much for anybody that has purchased one and i'll leave a link to what's up there now and hopefully by the time this goes live there'll be at least one other cool winter related option up there but anyway enough ranting about the cold (laughs) let's jump in and see what's been going on in the past week First up, Alex just posted a whole write-up about what ROM hacks are, how to patch them, and what some of his favorites are for the Game Boy and Game Boy Color. And I thought it was a great post that anybody who's just getting into the scene and who is kind of unfamiliar with this stuff might want to read through. And I'll give a quick summary of it here. But basically, ROM hacks are ways that developers can change original games. Most often ROM files from cartridges, but that also applies to disk images and stuff like that. But It could be anything from a complete restoration of a game to just changing one or two very small annoyances or fixing bugs to full translations, and they all essentially come down to the same process. You have to find yourself a ROM of the game. Alex kind of walks through some of this now uh, in the post, but the generalization is you could rip your own uh, if you have the tools to do so. You could download them, which is technically illegal, but if you own the game... It's kind of not at the same time. There's always going to be some pedantic comment about this. Go ahead. Hate me for saying that. I'm not going to read it. But uh, then after you've gotten your ROM, you got to find the patch. ROMhacking.net is a great place to find a lot of these patches and hacks. And then you have to figure out software to use in order to patch those. There's a bunch of different ones out there. Uh, Alex has links to some of the ones that he uses. And then after that, play it and some of the ROM hacks out there are absolutely unbelievable, and it's really hard going back to the original game. In fact, the Link's Awakening Redux patch that Alex shows here is one of my absolute favorites, and it's totally my favorite way to play Link's Awakening. I I do love the Switch version too, though, and uh, he even mentioned Tetris, where it saves your high scores, which I think is awesome, because that did always drive me crazy when I do really well, and then You know, there's no way to save your game. With cell phones now, you could obviously just take a picture of the screen, but that would have been something I would have loved back in the day. And then playing all of these ROMs are as easy as either firing up an emulator and using it the same way you would any kind of ROM through an emulator. Or my favorite way is on ROM carts, like the Everdrives, the Game Drives, and pretty much anything that allows you to take a file of a game put it on an SD or micro SD card, pop it into your original console and play it as if it was the original game. And that's definitely my favorite way to play because everything about it feels like the original except for the few changes that have been made to the ROM. So if you're into this stuff, especially if you're new, please check out Alex's post. Or if you're an expert, scroll down to the end and check out his suggestions for some of his favorite Game Boy and Game Boy Color ROM hacks. Analog has just reopened pre-orders on their pocket handheld console, and while pre-orders should remain open for quite a while, there's a few things that you should note about it. First of all, the price has gone up to 220 plus shipping, and as long as you don't live in a place where shipping is almost as much as the console, I actually think this is an incredibly low price. I thought the price was already very low beforehand, especially considering all the things that you're getting, but now we're in the middle of an unprecedented global part shortage and the fact that it only went up a little bit is pretty cool they could have very easily gone to 249 299 399 and people would have pushed back but people would have still bought it and they know that, and they chose not to do that. So, absolute huge props to them. Uh, I, you know, I, I can't imagine that was an easy decision, and I'm, I'm sure there's a lot riding on this, and could be some more delays riding on that to keep that price as low as well. But that brings us to the other thing that you should need, uh, that you would need to note about this is they're getting shipped out in batches. So, what is probably happening is they're going to set a number just like they used to for their pre-orders, but when that number is filled rather than cut off pre-orders, everything that comes after that is going to get dumped in different groups. So, if you're in group A, which is probably all filled up, you will get yours in quarter one of 2022. So, very soon, you know, relatively speaking. Once group A fills up, if you're in group B, you'll get yours before the end of next year. And then all the ones that come after that in group C will come in 2023. Now, the other good thing about this is if you're not sure if you want to wait that long and you put your order in, a couple days after the order goes through, you'll be able to supposedly go on their website and see what group you're in. And if you decide, ah, you know, that's too far away. I don't know what life's going to be like then they'll refund your money. So all of this is about as fair as anybody could possibly ask for. And I do think it's very cool that they waited to do this until the other one started shipping. So I have not gotten my ship notification yet, but other people have. So they're definitely going out to people. People are definitely receiving them. And I just thought that was a cool gesture because it would have been very easy to just open up a new round of pre-orders every couple months, especially when everybody was home locked down and needed something to do uh, and then just not ship. And I think think it was kind of a neat move that they waited until they started shipping to reopen the pre-orders on it. I think that's a pretty cool gesture. So shout out and props to them for all of that stuff, but more about the pocket itself in a second. Everyone who got early access to an analog pocket has released their review video this week and everybody really seemed to like it. Especially the screen cuz not only did it look good just by itself, but all of the different effects of mimicking the screens of the original handhelds looked really incredible. And overall I think people just gave it their thumbs up and and really thought it was worth the money and a good product. The only things to note which I don't know if I'd call them negatives but things to note are the dock doesn't have full functionality yet. That's supposedly coming in a firmware update. And there's a few other small things and features that aren't quite there yet that could probably be fixed relatively soon with a firmware update. But I think that's totally fair to expect from a product from a smaller company because while analog loves to do their fancy press releases and make it look like they're nintendo sized they're not and it's not fair to expect full functionality from every tiny little thing on day one now if they never do it fine complain away but if all of the stuff is added in a firmware update relatively soon i think personally that's totally fair the only thing to note is is Corey from My Life in Gaming mentioned issues with his D-pad, specifically with like diagonal shooting in Contra for Game Boy. And if you're sensitive to D-pads, that's something to take note of, because the big downside of a handheld is your screen and your controller are all built in. And with a screen like this one, that's nothing to worry about. But if you don't like the D-pad on any of these handhelds, it could be hard to change. I'm not sure if anybody's swapped one out yet. Or to be honest, they might be so new that just with a couple hours of playing, it kind of wears in and goes away. But if you're sensitive to D-pads, kind of wait. And I'm assuming this is because they've partnered with 8BitDo, one of their affiliate companies, in order to do this stuff. And some 8BitDo controllers have had D-pad issues. Now, I got to say, I absolutely love my SN30 Pro, and it is the only controller I use for my Nintendo Switch. And I have used the D-pad on it with no issues whatsoever, but I have owned other 8-bit dough controllers that did have D-pad issues. So I'm not sure if this is something that's just going to wear in or if there's a fix or if this is not a problem at all and Corey just got a bum pre-production unit is all totally fair by the way so i guess this is one of those things where time will tell but if you're sensitive to d-pad stuff uh, i don't know i would maybe go through all of the different reviews and kind of pick and choose uh, and, and see who talked about what and see if any of that see if you should take caution or if you feel like now nah, I'll just buy it it's probably fine that's going to be up to you uh, there's a bunch of great reviews out there uh, my life in gaming digital foundry modern vintage gamer all did good videos there's a few other people as well I'm going to be doing a live stream of it when one arrives um, I'm not really a fan of handhelds in for gaming. I mean, I appreciate what they are, and I, I certainly appreciate everything that went into making this as cool as it was. But for me personally, I would always rather just game on a TV. So I was very lucky that a friend of mine offered to buy it and have it sent to me so that I could do a quick unboxing, live stream review, and then send it on to them. So I, hopefully I'll be able to still do that whenever it does arrive. Uh, but just keep in mind that I'm not, really the go-to person for handhelds. So if you jump into that stream and I'm complaining, 99% chance I'm complaining about playing on a handheld, not playing on the analog pocket. But I am incredibly grateful that I get to try this thing out, mess with it, and then send it to my friend who paid for it, and I didn't have to shell out all the money myself in order to check it out. So uh, hopefully I'll have a live stream next week, I guess, with that. But if not, I'll keep everybody posted and definitely check out everybody else's detailed and pretty awesome review. The team behind Recallbox has just launched new software and a Kickstarter for a new piece of hardware to coincide with that, and there's a bunch of cool stuff to talk about. First of all, the Kickstarter itself is for a Raspberry Pi RGB hat which is a SCART or D-sub outputting device that goes up to the top of Raspberry Pi 3 or 4s, which that last part's important because that means you're able to get RGB out from the much faster Raspberry Pi 4. And I believe it also works with the 4 computer. So it looks like a little keyboard with the Raspberry Pi 4 built in. I've never tried one, but they look really neat. And I've always tempted to pick one up for, for whatever reason. So it's basically just a standard RGB output Support for 31 kilohertz VGA will be added to the software at some point, but the biggest feature is that when it's plugged into the Pi, it's auto detected. So if you're using the Recall Box software that was just released, version 8.0, you don't even have to configure anything. Just plug it in, plug it into your RGB monitor or whatever, and that's it. You get to start gaming. There's no S video output on this one, which I think some people were probably hoping for, and there's no component video output. So you would need an RGB to comp if you're using this on a TV, but you could also use their software, I believe without this hat and just enable composite video output. So if you're playing on a consumer grade CRT, You know, if you have a situation like many people do, where you have like a very cool 14-inch PVM and you have like a 32-inch consumer-grade CRT with only composite input, you can get the best of both worlds. You know, use RGB on the PVM and then use composite on the nice big consumer TV. But either way, I think it's a pretty cool piece of hardware. The software itself looks great too. It's completely focused on retro gaming and also optimized for 15 kilohertz displays. So the whole menu and everything uh, should feel pretty good, even though you're squishing it to a lower resolution. And all of the emulators launch in the original refresh rate and resolution of the original consoles, which I believe is something the RGP Pi team did, but I'm not sure if there's other softwares out there that have gone through the trouble uh, that both of these teams have gone through. So it really just seems awesome and it seems like something i'm very much looking forward to try my my preference for raspberry pi gaming is stuff that i can't do elsewhere so you know things like arcade is probably the number one use for me and i do realize that there's other stuff out there that you might want to use and of course using a pc is probably going to be the most fully powered version and The Recall Box software version 8.0 also works on PCs. You could just flash it to a USB stick, boot from that. So if you have a really powerful PC, you don't even have to change your existing configuration, just boot off the drive and you could use that for gaming, which I thought's pretty cool. There's also a bunch of neat options they integrated for HDMI output, like the Genesis Plus GX Wide Core, which renders some Genesis games in 16 by nine, so you could fill up the whole screen without stretching. I'm talking to you, Ian. And uh, yeah, so just, it seems awesome. If you want one, definitely pick up the Kickstarter now. It's 40-ish plus shipping, and it does not come with a case, but they have a 3D printed file available if you would like to print your own case. And I'm certainly looking forward to checking it out, but I think the combination of the hardware and software is what makes this one kind of special. So definitely give it a try, and uh, I'll keep everybody updated and hopefully be able to stream it live once it gets here. The team behind Doom 32X Resurrection has just posted a new update to the ROM hack, and it adds a few different features, some fixes, some tweaks, and they've improved rendering performance by 25%, which is kind of crazy. So if you're not aware of what this is, a while back this was really uh, this patch was released that completely redid the 32x version of Doom, which was already fine on its own, but this patch really just pushed it to its limits. And Everything about it has been improved. And if you have the ability to play 32X ROMs in any way, I strongly recommend giving it a shot if you like Doom. And of course, if you have original hardware, I would also recommend strongly recommend trying it on a ROM cart so you could truly experience what was possible back when this was released, but no developers ever did. Because I think that's something that a lot of people might think, oh, well, we have new technology today. There's new things we could do. They must be using the FPGA on the ROM cart to do it. But this is totally playable on original 32X hardware, so you get to really see what could have been done. And I just think it's so impressive. And if you're a fan of Doom, this is kind of a must-try if you're a retro nerd. I know Doom's on everything, and you, you know you probably played it on a microwave by now or something, but if you like the 32X, this one's special. So thanks for the team for, for keeping up on an already awesome patch that didn't need any other work. And if you need to know how to apply this patch, check out... Uh, both Alex's post on what ROM patches were and everything I talked about, talked about before, but also read through the instructions specifically for this one because the patching tool is different than most other ROM hacks I've ever tried. So very, very impressive stuff. And I played the first version they released publicly. I haven't had a chance to try this one yet, but I'm really looking forward to it. Pixel FX have just released a new firmware update for the N64 Digital that adds the ability to dial in custom aspect ratios, as well as the ability to import and export scanline filters from the Mr. FPGA project. So if you're unaware about all of this stuff, the N64 Digital has some really awesome scanline emulation in there. In fact, in the video I did about N64 stuff, I showed what I thought was a pretty good example of why CRT filters are important because they mask some of the stuff that you would have never seen on a CRT because of the way an image is drawn on those displays. And I really was super, super impressed with what they did and thought it was awesome. However, that's a small group of people working on something and as well, or as, as good as those might be, there's still been lots of improvements in the Mr. Community with their scanline filters. And in the past few months, we've seen it go from basically horizontal black lines across the screen to excellent CRT emulation. And a lot of developers have donated their time for this. A lot of really good people have made scan lines that are, are very accurate to the original. And it's a complicated problem regardless of who is working on this stuff because what CRT are you trying to emulate and what display are you playing on? So somebody gaming on a 65 inch OLED TV that's trying to emulate a 14 inch PVM Is going to have a completely different set of settings than somebody who's on like a 50 inch plasma, like the one that I've been testing on recently, and trying to emulate like a big consumer grade TV. So it's really tough to be able to dial all those in, and variety is going to be the key here. Because unless you want to make these from scratch yourself, it's much easier to start by bouncing off of the work that other amazing people have already started. And the ability to do that now on the Pixel FX N64 Digital is as easy as just downloading something that maybe you got dialed in on the mister and uploading it to that so i would strongly recommend if you have both devices just check out everything that's been going on lately there's built-in shadow mask support that sorg just added recently Um, some of the extra filters i've been using trash uncles filter recently Uh, but there's so many good people out there doing amazing stuff for this and once again it's going to look different to your eyes on your display based on what CRT you're trying to mimic. So it's something that there is no right answer. There's just what looks best for you. And the fact that pixel effects have opened it up to be able to do that and share uh, just make it easier for everybody. So, uh, you know, thanks to everybody who works on all of these things. And I'm really looking forward to see how far it comes because in just a very short period of time, we went from scan lines being just a bunch of black lines drawn across the screen to something that really does feel, like, feel as close as I've ever seen to being able to play on a real CRT. So finally, two years in the making, I finally got to meet up with Steve from Retro Tech and do an in-person interview. We were supposed to do it over two years ago. In fact, almost exactly just a little bit over two years ago, I was supposed to drive down. And then I remember I ended up getting sick, so we postponed it. And then the whole world got sick, so we've been trying to jump back into it since then. But he moved, I moved. There was a whole bunch of stuff in between and I eventually was just like, all right, forget it. Let's do it right now. I'll rent a van. I'll drive all these CRTs down I've been collecting and trying to bring you, and we'll go from there, and that's exactly what happened. I basically just left early in the morning, made a couple of stops picking up and dropping off more CRTs, got to his house in the evening, unloaded the van, did an interview, drank all his beer, passed out, woke up, and left first thing in the morning, which I think I did that same thing to Dan a couple of years ago. <laughs> I think Woozle too. Sorry, everybody. And thanks for the beer. But uh, yeah, it was an absolute blast. We hung out, had a great time. The interview talked about everything from working on CRTs all the way to just stupid stuff we did as kids. And uh, I really enjoyed it. We're definitely going to be doing that again. I'll probably make a trip at least once a year down to visit or to at least meet halfway or something. So we'd always try to figure out a way to, to do a podcast whenever we do that, because it's always a bunch of fun if you're a fan of steve's work please consider signing up for his patreon or at the very least subscribe to the youtube channel and tell your friends because that's always an important part but steve does great videos about calibration and repair of crts um and, and everything from hey here's how to change some settings on a crt completely safe to hey you know don't die while doing this but here's how to repair the inside of a crt and safety is always imperative when working on crts so we beat that point to death in the interview so i'll just say you could possibly die while working on a crt you're never going to die working on a super nintendo unless you do it in your bathtub or something like that with it plugged into the wall holding a soldering iron. Stupid analogy, but it always paints a very clear picture when I say it. So check that out. And also check out he and Lewis's Zez Retro podcast, uh, or the Cathode Ray podcast on the Zez Retro channel, because he and Lewis Zezrin talk about all of the in-depth stuff into CRTs, and they're also very funny and likable people. So uh, definitely something you're going to want to check out if if you like Steve and you want to hear more from him. But I was just so glad to finally get down there and hang out and do this, because it's been way too long, uh, and hopefully we'll get to do this on a much more regular basis going forward. An official release date has finally been announced for Windjammers 2. It's going to be coming out on pretty much all platforms on January 20th so just about a month from now. And this game was originally expected to release in late 2018, but it has been delayed since then. And I read through the interview they did on the PlayStation blog, and it seems like that was absolutely the right move, because the team behind it, who has also done a bunch of other remakes, uh, really good remakes of older games, said that when they started to do the port of Windjammers over to an emulation Uh, an emulation-based system on modern consoles, they kind of thought they were going to take that and bounce off of it to make the sequel. But what they realized was, even though they were able to make it look and sound pretty close to the original, something wasn't right with the feel. And that's what makes a game like Windjammers as popular as it was. Because essentially, it's just like an advanced version of Pong. But if the controls aren't just right and the feel of the game isn't right, you might just go play Pong instead. So they really wanted to dig in and get the right feel of the game. So they ended up going back and doing a full, um, I don't know what the best word is. I think disassembling the code. I was going to say reverse engineering, but I'm trying to get my terminology right. But they did, they disassembled the code from the original game to try to figure out exactly what's going on and try to, how to, try to figure out how to make it feel the same on modern platforms, while also doing things like adding true 16x9 support, adding more characters, so it's not just another remake, it's a true sequel. It's exactly what you would expect from, like, MK1 to MK2, a natural progression of the game with a lot of the original characters, some new ones, uh, looks better, so... I'm very excited to try this out, because I never really played Windjammers growing up, but Cousin Scott got me into it a couple years ago, and then when we eventually got Neo Geo's and of course the Mr. Core, I- I've been playing it a lot more and I really enjoy it. He still whoops my butt at it every time we play it, but I still really enjoy it, and I'm interested to see what the sequel's gonna be like. I am very nervous about the online play, not because of mu by the way, but because every game I've tried to play online on the Switch has been terrible. So I really wanna I really hope that Nintendo manages to get get everything worked out um and try to try to get it so that I could actually enjoy an online game and you know now that I'm in the burbs with a terrible internet connection, I could excuse it, but when I was in the city, I had gigabit fios that always every time I did a speed test was nine sixty down nine sixty up so it was never my internet connection, and I, I wired everything, of course, just to make sure. I tried wired and wireless, but I never was able to use Switch Online well. And I, I you know, I, I assumed it wasn't me because I figured my setup was right. So hopefully, I'll be able to play Cousin Scott at Windjammers Two over the internet and enjoy the experience. We'll see. But anybody, if you have any thoughts on the Switch Online stuff on their, you know, on their versus multiplayer, everybody I've asked said it's broken, but. Maybe I'm missing something. Maybe it's getting better. Maybe I'm making a mistake. I'm only human. It happens all the time. But if you have any thoughts, let me know. But I think the general consensus is it's still not so great for online play. But we'll see. Well, that's it for this time. As always, thanks so much to everybody who watches, listens, plays nicely in the comments, and especially everybody who supports on any service like Patreon, Floatplane, Ko-fi, or any of the other ones, because without you, none of this stuff would ever happen. So thank you all so much, and I will see you next week. Hopefully less cold than I am this week.